Father, sometimes we, we joke and laugh when we read a part of your word and acknowledge that it sounds harsh. It may even confront us in some ways. But Lord, all of your word is for our good and for your glory. We pray that it might achieve its glorious purposes amongst your people this morning. Pray that we would humbly receive anything that might be uh, the correction of your spirit to us. And Lord, we pray that we would be changed in good ways, that the things that are described in these verses may not ever be descriptive of us. And Lord, we need the enabling of your spirit not only to hear your word rightly, but to apply it rightly. So you are, we ask for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now often you see ads on TV where they say, coming up this week, the biggest ever lotto or Powerball or whatever other thing that has ever been. And I just Googled this morning because I realised I hadn't, didn't have specifics in here. Apparently 150 million is the biggest one that they've ever done within Australia. But when you see those ads, you ponder, oh, imagine what you could do with that. Now, one time I decided I was going to take the imagination literally. And I thought, okay, let's see what I could do with that sort of money. I can tell you, when I started to put together a little list of things, I didn't even make a dent in that figure because I don't actually want that much stuff. I'm quite happy to, to have a house... I don't want a Ferrari or Porsche. I'm happy with a V8 Holden. I'm quite happy with that. (laughs) But it shocks me so often to hear about people who win these exorbitant amounts of money, but in a really short time period, somehow, they've got nothing. I was at the hairdresser this week, and she spoke of someone she knew who had won Lotto twice, as well as winning one of those Your Town prize homes. And right now, they've got absolutely nothing. Well, you've heard many news stories about successful businessmen. And somehow, something can tragically can happen overnight. They go from got everything to nothing. It seems that this wealth that is promoted and pursued so heavily in this world has got absolutely no certainty to it that it will last. Then on top of that, you think about how, how people so urgently pursue such things and because it's the one pursuit of their life, they will do many unjust things along the way in order to acquire it. All this effort for something temporary, unstable, You can't take it with you. It's got no guarantee that it'll even bring the happiness that it promises. Yet from James chapter 3 verse 13, James has been saying a lot about humility. Making some, drawing some comparisons between humility and pride, especially in chapter 4, where he kind of sandwiched a passage with these two verses. In verse 6 he said, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In verse 10, he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord 
and he will exalt you. And throughout the process, James gave some examples about what humility looked like, but particularly he focused a lot of how pride was expressing itself amongst the people to whom he was writing. How the proud were selfish, how they were bitter, how they would use their words to bring other people down in order to elevate themselves. Yet the humble are those who want to speak words to build other people up. Some of those to whom James were writing kind of had a very self-centred perspective of this world. They wanted what they wanted. They were the most important and they deserved in their minds everything that they wanted. And James says, what caused all these fights? All these quarrels amongst you? Is it not the conflict of, of your passions where you've got groups of people who want what they want, they expect what they, what they expect and they oppose someone else and you're fighting over getting something for yourself. But we saw last week, we are not the one who is in ultimate control of our life. We are not the ultimate ruler of everything because we don't have all power. We don't have all authority over any aspect of our life. We are all subject to the sovereign God and his perfect will. But most of the time it's been talking about humility and pride. There's been a bit of a balance, a bit of the good and the bad. But as you notice in this morning's reading, there's not much positive to be said. It's quite negative in the things that are spoken. It's corrective in the things in which it's addressing. Now, if you remember the setting of those to whom James is writing to, he is writing to Jewish Christians who have been scattered as a result of persecution. As a result, they've kind of scattered quite quickly. They don't have a great deal of money. Most of them are probably quite poor. And these verses are addressing the rich who have lived in luxury and who are taking advantage of these poor people. Sometimes you think, well, something written so long ago, that can't be relevant today, but in 2,000 years has really much changed. We have some people who get all of the money living in luxury and along the path will take advantage of those who are far less fortunate themselves in order to get to where they are. So James addresses a warning to rich landowners. He addresses selfish hoarding. He addresses a warning to those rich who exploit others less fortunate and those who would persecute the righteous. But firstly, a warning to rich landowners. Now you'll notice in verse 1 it doesn't say anything about landowners. But throughout the passage, this same rich to whom it's addressing, it talks about them and about those who harvest their fields and mow their fields. So it's talking about those who have this land are these rich people whom to whom he is speaking. And so he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So right from verse 1, you think, this is not going to be an easy ride, this, these verses. But there are two different approaches to who is James speaking to. 
Some say that James is addressing rich, rich Christians. Some say that he's addressing those who are rich who are not believers. Now those who say that he's writing to rich Christians, they think, well, James is writing a letter to Christians who have been scattered as a result of persecution. What sense would it make to, to write addressing a particular issue if the recipients aren't going to hear it? At the same way, you could say, oh, I've seen lots and lots of protests where people have made and communicated all sorts of things, yet the person they wanted to communicate it to isn't there and often has no clue that it's even taken place. The reason for the second option, that is addressing the rich who are not believers, but possibly who are Jews, is that regularly throughout James's epistle, he's addressed them as brothers when he's addressing particular points. But there is no such terminology used in these verses. In fact, you see almost a bit of a contrast when you get to verse 7 when it speaks about the brothers. The language in verses 1 to 6 focus pretty much predominantly upon judgment with no element of salvation in sight. And in verse 6, it speaks about those who persecute the righteous. So I'm probably more inclined to think it's, it's addressing the rich unbelievers who are impacting upon the believers to whom James is writing. But before we go anywhere, we need to say something about wealth and riches and the scriptures. James, Jesus and the Bible on the whole are not anti-wealth and not anti-riches. In fact, there are many great people throughout the scriptures who were wealthy. Moses, Job, David, Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, the list could go on. They're not commended because they are rich, but they were rich. It's not a matter of whether or not you have or you don't have. What God always approaches is how you deal with what you do have. We've probably both all encountered different categories of rich people, of generous, loving rich people, as well as selfish, nasty rich people. And it is that latter kind, the mean and selfish, that James is addressing. And we see some of the examples of how that plays out. They're hoarding, they're exploiting the poor, and they're persecuting the righteous. And as James says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He's speaking about a future misery that these rich will experience. That term translated as howl here is used throughout the, the Greek version of the Old Testament in Isaiah 13, 15 and Amos 8 where it speaks of the, the howling of the wicked as they are judged by God. And there are two reasons why these wicked rich will weep and howl on the day of the Lord. One is that every single thing that they have pursued and worked for in this life will come to nothing. They can't take it with them. And secondly, not only have they invested their life in things that are perishable, James says, it will bear witness against you in judgment. 
Because every single one of us will have to give an account. Paul says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Every one of us. Hebrews 4.13 is another example of that same teaching. Now, when we think about riches today, we tend to think about people with houses, cars, money. But for the first century, it was more about precious metals, clothes, things to which James is addressing. People were selfishly hoarding these things. And he says, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. In my experience, precious things are only precious if they are in good order. Like if I turned up this morning and I had an Armani suit on, yet it had a massive big hole in the back side and all the stuff's falling apart, no one's going to look at Steve and say, man, that guy's rich. Now some have looked at these verses and they object and say, hang on, gold and silver don't actually corrode. Has James even got a clue what he's talking about? I think James is very well aware that it's not making a scientific point. I think what James is trying to communicate is these things which you have placed so much value upon effectively are just as worthless as the base metals that do rust and corrode. And the way in which James addresses these things reflects something of the language of his half-brother Jesus who said in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. But James and Jesus tell us, do not spend your life in pursuit of things that will not last, in pursuit of things that will be destroyed. But look for things that will last. Look for the things that are eternal, the things that pertain to the kingdom. Not only because they will last and endure, but because the things that you treasure in your heart will define the things you Speak about the things you pursue, where your heart is, and will direct everything about the way in which you live. For these people, they have stored riches so that they are prepared for an unlikely disaster. But at the same time, they've done absolutely nothing in way of preparation for a definite judgment that is coming that preparation of salvation that Jesus Christ has offered, they've done nothing about that. But they've invested so heavily in accumulating wealth in case of an unlikely disaster where they might need some extra resources. So James continues, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Come the day when all need to bear account before God, these things will be of no benefit 
In fact, they will testify against you. They will be a sign of what was your truest heart's desire and they will bear witness against you. Now, even though James is writing in the 40s and the first century, he says, you've done this in the last days. Because biblically speaking, that term last days doesn't refer to a future time or even a time future for them or even future from us. As though it's some small period of time before Jesus returns. It uses that language of everything between Jesus' first and second coming. Because in God's overall plan of redemption, after his, Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the next and last thing in his plan of redemption is his return. For example, the author of Hebrews says, Long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed the heir of all things. Or at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Peter quoting Joel says, In these last days he will pour out his spirits, speaking about what had happened there in that time. John in his first epistle in chapter 2 goes even so far as to say, This is the last hour. Hebrews 9 speaks of Jesus and his sacrifice at the end of the ages. So these last days describes everything between Jesus' first and second coming. Now warning to those who are rich but exploit others. Behold, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now in first century Palestine, there was pretty much a few small number of really, really wealthy people who owned all of the land. And most of them exploited those who would serve and work under them. But God has always been a God of justice for the poor. So much so that it's written in the Old Testament laws. There was protections placed in the Old Testament laws so that we'd never been in a situation where a handful of rich would own everything. Leviticus 25 spoke about a jubilee year every 50 years where people would get their land back which had been taken. Not only was that not being observed, but they continued to exploit their workers and not pay them. Not because they didn't have the money to pay them, but just they didn't care to. Again, we see the heart and command of God from Deuteronomy, where it says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land or within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it, lest he cry out, against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. And Leviticus 19 expresses a similar idea. Now, unlike us who are kind of used to a, a paycheck every week or every couple of weeks or every month, depending on what the arrangement is where you work, it was common practice that people would be paid on a daily basis. They would get what they got given, that would be enough to tie them over to pay to provide for their daily needs. So to not pay people on a daily basis was to deny people the resources they need to be able to feed themselves and to provide for their family. 
And this, James says, is crying out against these rich people. Crying out in judgment against them. It's not just the exploits of the rich that are eating the ears of God. It says even the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This is a God who cares for the poor. Seen expressed in his laws, the psalmist writes in this way, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. The way James describes these wicked rich, it's not exactly flattering, is it? says, you've lived on the earth and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts on a day of slaughter. Now he's got two key points. He says, you have lived on the earth. Your focus has been this earth, this life, and all of it in selfish indulgence. And then secondly, that they've fattened their hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, I haven't worked on a beef farm, but I'm aware that it's common practice that they will fatten up um, the cattle before the slaughter time in order to, to put on weight and to do various different things. James has already spoken much about a future judgment, how they'd weep, yell, weep and wail, how these things are happening in the last days, lighting, there is a, a final day coming. But in light of these last days, in light of the judgment, they've lived in self-indulgence. They've lived fattening themselves. They've hoarded, exploited. And James says they have even condemned and murdered as they persecute the righteous. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. Now, some look at that verse and think it's a verse about Jesus and there are true statements um, that you could derive about Jesus from it. But it doesn't fit the context that James is speaking about. Most of James's readers are Jewish Christians who have been scattered and who are poor, who have been under the oppression and the injustice of the rich landowners who are not paying them rightly. And as they live from day to day, to fail to provide for them day to day could actually be as much as life and death. Now it's unknown if they literally were murdering or if that was just exaggerated language for the fact they were denying them the things that they needed to live. But still, either way, they were guilty. But with a lack of punctuation in biblical Greek... That last sentence could be a sentence or it could be a question, which would both portray a biblical truth. So either that they have condemned and murdered a person, one of the poor farmers who does not resist, or it actually could either be a question where it says, does he not resist you? Speaking of God's opposition to those who have treated the poor in this way. Both true statements, um, presumably given that every other translation stuck with the sentence, we'll stick with that one. But not much changes over 2,000 years. Wherever there is greed and selfish ambition, James says there is every evil practice. 
The place where we moved up from uh, in Victoria was a large um, dairy farming area and there were lots of farmers who were accused of doing these very things, of hiring overseas workers, paying them less than what they need to do in very unfair conditions. There were people acquiring land at the expense of other farmers who were finding times difficult and financially struggling, failing to pay people as they should, while the rich are using their influence effectively to get away with murder. The passage is not an attack on having wealth. The passage is not an attack on saving money. In fact, there are a number of the commands of scriptures which require money to be saved. For example, Paul says to Timothy, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, I should explain that term. It doesn't mean that, they are, that if they haven't, that, that somehow they're in a worse spiritual position than an unbeliever. What, what he's saying is that unbelievers will naturally provide for their own family. How much more should Christians be doing that? So if you don't even do that, you are behaving in a manner that even those who don't know Christ are capable of doing. You are worse at doing than what they naturally do. Now at some point someone will say, but doesn't the Bible say money is the root of all evil? Guess what? The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. Never has, never did. It says something kind of like that. In 1 Timothy 6.10, this is what it actually says. It says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that many have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It doesn't say the money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of a is a root is in one of many roots of all kinds of evil. Money can be used for many good purposes. It can also be used for many evil purposes. In fact, the very same chapter of 1 Timothy chapter 6, just a few verses later, has this to say. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So the same Paul who wrote to Timothy in the same chapter, he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, also says, for those who are rich, don't be proud, don't be haughty, don't place your trust in your riches, place your trust in God. Well, think of how Paul speaks to the Ephesians, of what true riches really means. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say riches are a good thing. You must have them. Pursue them with all of your heart. 
Nowhere do the scriptures say that if you are a Christian, you are guaranteed wealth, even though there are people who falsely teach such things. The true riches we are to pursue are spiritual riches. Paul in Ephesians speaks five times of riches. Speaking of the riches of his grace, the riches of, his, of the glorious inheritance of the saints. These are the true riches that we should pursue. In a tangible, material sense, if we have much or little, it counts for nothing. You can't take it with you. Be good stewards of what little or much you have. But these true riches, the riches of his grace, his glorious inheritance, the riches of his glory, regardless of your financial status, are available to all of us and are things that all of us should humbly pursue with all of our heart. It's closing prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm sure all of us at times have gone after material things with a zeal greater than we have than we have gone after you. At times we may have put it as necessary for security and comfort. At times it might have just been so I can have lots. Lord, whether through the natural course of life, employment, whatever it be, whether we have much or we have little. Being rich in your eyes is not what we have in our material sense. Being rich in your eyes is that we have Christ and that we have taken hold of him and all of his blessings. Of whom Paul says we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. So Lord, correct us if we have turned and allowed our heart to be consumed by the material things of this world and made little of the wonderful riches that you have provided so bountifully for us to enjoy. Lord, may we be rich in you, in your grace, in your provision, in your word. May your word dwell in us richly, that we may comprehend something of the glorious inheritance that you have promised for your saints. And help us to live faithfully and be good stewards in this world, knowing that everything that we have here and today is temporary, unstable. We can't take it with us. But Lord, that we might be people who pursue the things of the kingdom, the things that are eternal. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.